Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you for worshiping together as a church family. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezra once more. <clears throat> Today, Ezra chapter 4. If you're using the uh, Bibles that we provide, that's page 376. Ezra 4. I want us to think about a serious issue this morning, and that is the issue of what gets you spiritually discouraged? What would cause you to back away, back down, give up on good spiritual intentions? I believe God's at work in us all the time. It seems that God's at work at Open Door Bible Church for, I think for many, a new season, a new uh, maybe set of commitments. It's possible that, that uh, there are people making decisions to attend church regularly when they've fallen off of, of doing that. It's possible that there are people who are making fresh commitments to personal worship. We talked about worship last week. It may be the new season of, of service, a new season of, of willingness to, uh, to live generously, a new season of uh, perhaps involvement with people when maybe you're not a people person. I don't know what that season might be, but what could cause someone to back away when there's been a fresh commitment to pursue God and what God has for someone as we follow the story of the uh, Jews, this is 535 B.C., it was a new season for them as they had been in exile for some 70 years out of the country in Babylon. And when Persia took over, things began to change in a very good and encouraging way because suddenly what we saw in chapter 1 is that God moved in the heart of a foreign king, King Cyrus of Persia, and he said to the Jews, I want you to go back to Israel. I want you to go and rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. That was amazing. We saw in chapter 1 that God said to people within their own hearts, moving their hearts individually, who should go? And some 50,000 Jews, the families are all listed in chapter 2, returned to Israel. And then in chapter 3, we saw that as they got settled into their homes, probably just a couple of months, they got together in Jerusalem and started what they came to do, which was worship. They didn't even have a temple rebuilt, but they said we could at least build the altar and begin to worship. And the first part of chapter 3, they're worshiping with joy and excitement as they build the altar itself and worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. And a few months later, they're able to begin to lay the foundation of the temple. And again, there is great worship. It's very encouraging to see everything that God was doing. But as we come to the end of chapter 4, we're going to study chapter 4, but look at the last verse, chapter 4, verse 24, to see what happened. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is a 15-year span in which, after laying the foundations of the temple, everything comes to a halt. Why did that happen to people who were so 
otherwise, it seems, spiritually encouraged. Before we get into our text, I think there is a clue of something that may have started to stir some discouragement at what we saw at the end of chapter 3. Middle of verse 11 of chapter 3, when they're worshiping as they lay the foundation of the temple, and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because, of the, found, because the foundation of the Lord foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. What's going on is that a few of the older ones had actually seen the previous glorious temple under Solomon, and so it didn't compare. So I wonder if this might have been an underlying issue that was taking place. Criticism from within. Doubts planted as they begin to think about what they came to do. Did we move here 900 miles, four months travel, move the prosperity of, from the Babylon down to Israel? Did we move here to build a mediocre temple? Was there some of that seeds of, I don't think this is really a great thing at all? Because all it takes sometimes is for, is for other Christians to say something negative. And it, it can propel discouragement in us. Maybe that's in the background. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, the two that had returned heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They, that is the enemies of Judah, came to Zerubbabel, the the leader of this project, and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra Hayden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Sounds good, doesn't it? The local people want to help. This is kind of be like like maybe an outreach, a bridge builder. Why wouldn't you take that help? Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Jeshua is the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. Didn't say your God, our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Okay, we, we were commissioned to do it, not, not you guys. So who are these people? What was the threat that Zerubbabel Recognize It was the threat of compromise. It's the threat of mixing truth with error. So the time frame is, this is about 535 B.C. But what they are recalling is that the northern ten tribes, okay, this is Judah and Benjamin who has been commissioned. They are, they, they have, they, they are purebred Jews, if you will. They had kept to themselves in Babylon. They come back together. But the ten tribes had been taken as exiles 200 years earlier. 722 B.C. The Assyrians, the empire at the time, had come and taken many, many, many thousands of the Jews and exiled them into Assyria. But their strategy was to transplant Assyrians back into the population. As a result, they intermarried. The reference to Ezra Hayden actually wasn't at 722, or some 60 years later, when there was evidently another wave of Assyrian immigrants that were transplanted into Israel. 
And so was it true that they were worshiping the same God? Well, partly true. It's kind of complicated because they worshiped God, but not God alone. These people came to be known as the Samaritans. They were in the region of Samaria, and we know them in the New Testament in the days of Jesus to be the Samaritans. Here's what happened according to 2 Kings. Syncretism. God plus other gods. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, and there's a list of names, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. But every nation who had come in still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans there in Israel had made. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away, transplanted in. They served both. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved image. Images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. No one can serve two masters. But that is what was happening. There was a syncretism taking place. So Zerubbabel rightly refuses their help. It, help. It's, it's a crisis of discouragement averted to this point. Give Zerubbabel credit for this. He recognized that they were trying not to help, but to sabotage the project. They may have felt that the Israelites returning were were encroaching on their, their land, but at the base of it all was a spiritual opposition, a spiritual battle that is always taking place unseen. Our enemy is against singular devotion and worship, to God and Zerubbabel saw through this and thought, you know what? This is what happened to those people. They worshipped both, and if we allow them to help with our project, the same thing's going to happen to us. They're going to come, and we're going to work side by side. We're going to develop these relationships. We're going to intermarry, and before you know it, there's going to be idols in our households as well. Religious syncretism. It's a term that's used today to describe any time you merge kind of unlike philosophies or particularly religious ideas. Uh, In Mexico and the Philippines, I've seen an abundance of uh, of churches, steeples, priests, and, and references to Jesus and statues of Jesus but what I understand from, from missionaries is that the same people who are, are going to those services and following what the priests say throughout the week are consulting witch doctors and are really worshiping spirits. Just a whole hodgepodge of putting it all together. I think there's a constant tendency, tendency of our enemy to discourage and to dilute truth by mixing truth with error. It's not all error, usually. It's truth plus error. What are some examples of that today? One would be confusing the gospel. There are a lot of people who, who, who go to buildings with crosses, right? But do they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So often there's a confusion where there's agreeing with much of the Bible, but adding that salvation requires good works, not just faith alone in Christ alone. 
That changes everything because if you're trusting in Christ plus works, you're not trusting in Christ who said it's finished and that the cross is fully sufficient to save. A confusion of the gospel. Sometimes syncretism is much like in that day. It's a mixture of false pagan ideas with by someone who says they believe the Bible. People who say they believe in Christ but follow horoscopes or ascribe power to any objects like crystals or statues. There's a tendency to just kind of believe that, that objects can be holy. If you go to the Holy Land and bring back a vial of water from the Jordan River, it's a fine souvenir. It's not holy water. It doesn't have power. If you have a little angel figurine in your cabinet, it's not watching over you. It's not a real angel. And and if you see a statue of some religious item or person, it might be great art. It doesn't have power. Those are actually pagan concepts. Sometimes Christians want to really know the future. And like King Saul, they just say, who do I talk to? How can I know the future? And, and, And maybe the horoscope, maybe the stars, maybe... If someone claims to know your future, they are guessing at best, or at worst, could be occultically connected and consulting demons. But it's not good. Only God knows the future. He alone has infinite knowledge. I remember a uh, chiropractor that my family used just a few miles down the road. She was of great benefit to us through the years. And then there was a season where she started to introduce healing crystals. Someone who proposed, uh, claimed to be a, a believer and uh, yet had been drawn into crystals having power to heal. And I remember my dad uh, talked to her, and to my knowledge, I think she actually uh, stopped using those. Another place we mix truth and error is obviously on morality. People who say they believe the Bible but change and agree with culture about moral and sexual issues. I probably don't need to remind you that in the last 10 to 20 years especially, really the last 50 or more, a sexual revolution, but the last 10 to 20 especially, our culture has embraced almost every form of sexual immorality. In fact, the drumbeat is to proudly exalt what God clearly calls sin. You know, as you look through this list, maybe you can check all those boxes that you're not falling prey to this or this or this. But I think there's one more that I think was on Zerubbabel's mind that would cause him and should cause us concern because it, it kind of seeps into every one of us. And it's this mixture. Success, materialism, pleasure, self-fulfillment, Christians who live selfishly following the values of unbelievers and actually the values of many other Christians. Sometimes it comes in the form of books or blogs that refer to maybe it's self-fulfillment or self-actualization is a term used. Be who you're meant to be. Stop apologizing. Go for it. It's all about you. And basically, it's a worship of self, exalting self, when Christ said, we are to sacrifice self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart instead of loving self. Do we recognize the mixture of self 
into our commitment to Christ. Too many times as Christians we unthinkingly think like the world. Where does this come from? Our battle is actually against satanic ideas. The God of this world is Satan. God, little g. Doesn't mean he's really in charge. God's always in charge. He is the, the king of the ages, 1 Timothy 1.17. But he is followed and worshipped by so many, so he is their God, if you will. And so our battle is this, 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you, do you see that the battleground is arguments, opinions, and thoughts? The real arguments that we, the real uh, obstacles and barriers and battle that we face spiritually is generally about ideas, beliefs, values. Satan doesn't speak directly into our ear to say things, but people do. Podcasts and blogs and media and friends and books, Christian friends and non-Christian friends. In fact, sometimes Christian friends can be the source of greatest temptation to us with false ideas. Because if they have bought into a world system, it is innocuous, it is, it is undetectable. It's a silent killer because we tell ourselves, well, they're, they're Christians too. And they believe this, or they live for this. These kinds of things will spiritually discourage us. These kinds of things, the, the influence of certain people and ideas will pull us away. And so I have to wonder as I look in the book of Ezra, why did this project stop for 15 years? While on one hand we give Zerubbabel a lot of credit, he, he stopped this infiltration of, of the, the Samaritans working with them but it was ever prevalent around them were those ideas of compromise brewing. We know that throughout the Old Testament, the, the pull to idolatry and mixing idolatry with the worship of God was always present. If you're cooking or baking something, you've got a recipe card on the counter. Sometimes you might have other recipe cards around too, but what if, as you're, you're, you're making this stuff, you accidentally glance over at another card sitting nearby. Now you start adding that ingredient or put in that much salt or this one called for that, but it doesn't. What are you going to end up with? You may have a lot of the right ingredients in it, but it's a disaster because of what was not supposed to be in it. Are we sensitive? Are we discerning about truth? And error. James 1 8 says, The double minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You can't go two directions at once. It's a context of saying that if you're seeking God's wisdom, you're at a new place spiritually, you're, you're, you're seeking to, to launch some new commitment in your life, you sense God working, but then you go, Well, but. So if you ask God wisdom, James 1 5, He'll give it, but if you aren't really sure you want it, the double-minded person is unstable in really every way. Zerubbabel said no, to his credit, holding off the discouragement. But then what, verse 4? Then the peoples around them, these enemies, these compromising uh, people, set out to discourage the people of Judah 
and make them afraid to go on building. How'd they do that? They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so there is something happening, and it's not completely clear what all happened during those 15 years. But they are discouraged. The mask of helpfulness is removed. There is no more pretending. They want to stop the the project. This term discouraged means to literally weaken the hand. So if if you can cause a disease that now your your arms are limp. So they're discouraged. The word courage, discourage really, even in English, means a deficit of courage. Courage would be doing what God wants us to do. To be discouraged is to have a deficit of courage. Fear is what addresses what is what is what uh, minimizes our courage, depletes our courage. Fear. Counselors were hired. <laughs> Not certain who these were. Could be fellow Samaritans. Uh, it's been suggested. It makes some sense. These could have been Persian officials. Cyrus. The king had uh, sent all these people to Israel. Probably he would send some Persian officials as well to oversee or represent him. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8 refers to this Shesh Bazar, prince of Judah. He could be a Persian official. We don't know. Cyrus is the one that commissioned and authorized this project, but he was 900 miles away. And so if the locals are offering bribes, as in many uh, places, many countries, including our own, uh, corruption is prevalent. And so they are hired to somehow make threats. So there is a culture now of fear. Fear. Fear is what keeps us from our spiritual commitments. Let's think through a few of the Discouragements, potentially. Criticism from within. Did we move her to build a mediocre temple? Now we've looked at influence from outside. The danger of believing error mixed with truth. That questioning, is God's word really true? Culture presses in on us. Is God's word really true? But now there is a direct attack, the fear of the unknown. Fear is almost always about the unknown. Fear is often not what's happening, but the fear of what could happen, right? Threats, uncertainty. Some of the fears that keep us from our spiritual commitments are reputation. What will people think of me? If you know certain people that are very committed to Christ, sometimes people almost look at them like, what's wrong with you? You don't really fit. What will people think of me? If I really follow through and do what I sense God is asking me to do. Sacrifice. What will I have to give up? What will I give up? Will there be a sacrifice of time that I don't, don't think I have? Is there, is there, are there commitments? My, my, my schedule will look different. Difficulty. Will I have to do something uncomfortable? <laughs> Probably yes. Everything that is a commitment is uncomfortable. If if you're going out for football this fall, it's going to involve sacrifice and difficulty. 
embracing a challenge. Courage means going into, leaning into the challenge. Difficulty and then the fear of failure. What if I'm not good at what God asks of me? I mean, that'd be, that'd be terrible, right, if we weren't top of the class? If we didn't excel, if we didn't shine, if we didn't get the approval that we want? There are so many reasons that as we, we think of where God is taking us, there are so many th- kinds of fear that might cause us to hesitate. So for some reason, for 15 years, the project stopped. We'll actually be looking at some key reasons next week as well. But this is the, this is the environment, this is the atmosphere of what all has been happening. And the next one is this one. Sorry. Lies. Lies. What these counselors are going to do is they're going to perpetuate lies. Verse 6 says, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7 says, In the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, these various people wrote a letter. Now, we need to ask ourselves, when is this? So I'm going to ask you kind of to put your uh, high school, if not college, history class caps on. Because we find that the next section of chapter 4, from verses seven, 6 through 23, actually occurs not next, but in a future generation. We know that because we have gone from, look in verse 5, Cyrus to Darius, to verse 6, Xerxes, to verse 7, Artaxerxes. So we have stretched out some 80, 90 years into later kings. Here's the other way we know that this is historically something far future. The project that chapters 1 through 4 is all about is to rebuild the temple first, right? But let's take a look now at what this letter represents. We're going to come back to see maybe why this is included. But take a look at verse 12. The king should know, that's the letter they wrote to that fourth king, Artaxerxes, that the Jews who came up from us, from you, have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the what? The walls and repairing the foundations. Verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you'll be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates, the area as it was called by the Persians. And so they write this letter and King Artaxerxes actually succumbs to it. And so verse 23, it says, as the copy of the letter, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Stop what? Building the walls. So let's take a look at the history and see why these two different projects in two different eras are described here. Here's a little bit of an outline of the successes, a successive kings of Persia. Cyrus, first of all, the return under Zerubbabel in 536 was under Zerubbabel, and they begin the temple project. But then we see that there was a 15-year delay. 
The 15-year delay brings us actually to the time and ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, where we will uh, end with our study today. 520 BC is when that delay will be addressed. The return under Ezra, the last part of the book of Ezra, is much later, 458 BC. It's really another generation. And the return under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls is even later still. But who is writing the book of Ezra? Our best, it's compiled a long series historically, but our best understanding would be that Ezra himself wrote the book of Ezra. So he's writing here and telling the story of all these things that happened, starting with the rebuilding of the altar and the temple under Zerubbabel. And so as he tells about the political opposition faced by those folks then, he gives them an illustration more to the current day to say, you know, it's kind of like what we have been experiencing under Xerxes and Artaxerxes. So far from being confused about history, as some critics of the Bible claim, Ezra, as he's compiling this, is very clear about history. Because the people he wrote to understood exactly how he has switched from one administration to the next. It's kind of like this. If there's a modern historian in our day telling us something about, you know, World War II or President Eisenhower or something like that, you know, most of us weren't around for that. And so the historian might illustrate it by something that happened uh, under the the presidencies of of Clinton or Bush or something like that. Something that we would be more familiar with. And so probably that's what Ezra is doing, is to bring these uh, up as an illustration that the people first hearing it would fully understand. And then he will return to to the history timeline and say, so the project that I'm telling you about in Zerubbabel's time also ceased. So go to the end of the chapter now. We're not going to study that letter in detail. But verse 23 tells us how Artaxerxes stopped the, the wall project. But what does verse 24 do? Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of who? Darius, king of Persia. So there's a large parenthesis, verses 6 through 23, that's inserted. But really, uh, historically, we would go from verse 5 then to the end of chapter 4, verse 24. So you can dismiss yourself from your high school history class and your assignments will be due when you come back next week. Ezra's point is that political opposition has a very powerful spiritual effect on people. If the project in which they were called by God to go and rebuild the temple would stop for 15 years, what halted the project was political opposition. Lies like this letter, perhaps we're going to find in chapter 5 later, that there was a similar kind of a letter People telling lies. Do people ever tell lies about Christians now? <laughs> Do they ever represent what biblical values really are? Do they ever represent who we are, who, what we really stand for? You cringe sometimes to see how we are portrayed in the media. But, but that is 
the enemy's ideas. We have to accept that. And we cannot let it discourage us, give us a deficit of courage, but we must bravely go forward with understanding, living by God's truth, and teaching God's truth. I think of this important project halting for 50 years, 15 years. Of course, our first, one of our first thoughts is, so whose fault was that? It's a fair question. We need to learn from history, biblical history, of what, what really was happening. But there's kind of a mixture, it seems, of what was happening. It was this political opposition based on false ideas and lies that seems to have halted it. If they, if they sent letters legally or whatever, there was something similar happening that that stopped it. So you could say, that wasn't the Jews' fault, right? But when we resume and pick up this study and, and look in Haggai next week, we're going to find that actually there was something that was on the shoulders of the Jews who stopped rebuilding. So it was these legitimate and unavoidable things that happened that stopped the project, but why did it stay stopped? It's the same in our lives when we think through why we don't move ahead with something God is prompting us to do. Uh, There are unavoidable reasons why some things are... There are things that are in the sovereignty of God that we could not have changed. And that's why... We were spiritually stopped and discouraged, you could say. Intentional opposition. We've seen there are philosophical ideas contrary to God's word. That's the environment we live the Christian, in which we live the Christian life. The philosophical ideas. You can't help that there are wrong ideas out there perpetuated in, in, in this world. You can't help it when there will be or are political laws opposing godly values. I think there'll be more. Where it becomes increasingly difficult to to parent the way God calls us to parent, increasingly difficult to, to worship as we would want to worship. These things can and probably will happen. Persecution will increase. You can't stop that. You can't stop the fact that there'll be personal attacks. People who mock, people who tell lies. These are unavoidable causes of spiritual discouragement. But we're going to find that there are also some things where we can spiritually compromise. We're we're now talking about things that are on our shoulders. It's when we question what the Bible makes clear. We'll be discouraged because no longer do we have a, a foundation that we're going to really trust the promises, trust the principles, trust the statements of, of the absolutes of the Word of God. That's on us when we question what the Bible makes clear. It's on us when we are influenced by people with worldly priorities. That while it might have been that there was something that they opposed me and they stopped me and they wrote a letter, but but why is that still influencing us? Have we actually bought some of those ideas or priorities? Have we succumbed to our fears and hesitations? We're now... Three, five, seven, ten, fifteen years later, we're still stuck. And do we avoid God's word and God's people? We're going to discover in Haggai that it seems that they kind of all just went back to their own little lives. 
And that excitement there was to worship at the altar, the excitement of laying the foundation of the temple, kind of dissipated. And no longer were those things important. No longer were those things guiding their lives. It takes 15 years for some of these things to develop. It's a slow fade, as one of our Christian songs says. So is there hope to get back on track? We need to go into chapter 5 briefly. The work stopped, verse 24, until the second year of Darius, 15 years. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Idu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. When did they prophesy? Well, for that, we go to a parallel verse in Haggai. Remember Haggai? One of those very small books called sometimes the Minor Prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai 1. In the In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So God let this cycle of discouragement continue until God stepped in and said, I have a word for you. And that is our book of Haggai. Discouragement dissolves when we resume trusting God's word, resume hearing God's word, resume obeying God's word. Next several weeks we're going to uh, step out of the book of Ezra but really continue the story of Ezra by stepping into the uh, book of Haggai and perhaps some in Zechariah as well. Because they continue to tell the story of what happened. And they call us to reject passivity and to embrace the effort of continuing what God has begun. God's word changes everything. What spiritually discouraged you? We've looked at several. Criticism from within? Other believers, perhaps, questioning something that makes it seem not worthwhile. Influence from outside, where we begin to question the realities, the truthfulness of God's word. Is it some kind of fear? Fear that holds us back, fear of people, sacrifice, difficulty, failure. Is it the direct attacks, false accusations? And we just can't take it anymore, we think. What will draw us back and turn discouragement to encouragement? It will be only a recommitment to trust and obey the Word of God. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, reminded of our hearts that easily stray by distraction, by uh, mixing of 
the world's ideas with what we know to be true. I pray that you would protect our minds as believers, as followers of Christ. Make us discerning, make us sensitive to your spirit as we encounter the tactics of the enemy. We will not be uh, discouraged. But in fact, that as we recognize the enemy at work in various, maybe subtle ways, our minds will actually become more awake, more aware, more committed to draw upon you your truth and your power through your spirit within us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.